science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society with a mandate of demystifying science, separating sense and nonsense, myth from fact for you guys, as well as, of course, for our students. And um, obviously, we address everything that turns up in the scientific world these days and uh, uh, what turns up more than COVID-19. Obviously, nothing. We do need to talk about uh, the vaccine and the optimism that has been generated this week. Everyone is happy with this 90% uh, uh, efficacy of, of the vaccine, which is very impressive, especially since the FDA previously stated that they would be happy with a 50% uh, rating for a novel vaccine. 90% is, is really impressive because most vaccines don't reach that level. The measles vaccine is in, in that, uh, that area, but the flu vaccine is less than that, 70% uh, maybe. So, of course, uh, this is uh, certainly looking like a positive step forward. As you know, there's always a but. There always is a but. There are a couple of things to consider here. First of all, let's just explain what um, was done in this study and what we know. There were 44,000 subjects enlisted in this study. These were healthy people. They were divided into two groups. Half of them got a placebo, that's the control group, and half of them got the vaccine. This was a two-dose vaccine. They got one shot, then three weeks later they got another shot. During the period of this study, uh, all of the 44 subjects were asked to record how they feel, whether or not they had any symptoms that could be linked to uh, COVID-19. After um, uh, several months, 94 people were um, had listed some sort of symptom, and uh, they were tested and were found to be positive for COVID-19. Now, this is where we run into the first little issue with this study. Out of 44,000 subjects, 94 tested positive. That is a very, very small percentage. That is 0.21%. That is less than 1%. That is shockingly low. When we look at data from testing that has been going on across North America, ranges anywhere from 5 to some cases like North Dakota, 25% of the population that is getting tested uh, is showing up as positive. And here in this particular study, we're looking at less than 1%, in fact, a fifth of, of 1%. That seems to be a, a statistical anomaly. How do we explain this? Well, I, I think two things come to mind. Uh, first, the uh, the subjects really are are not random because they they're self-selected the people who will who will uh, apply to be subjects in a study like this are not a cross section of your general population these generally are healthy people most of them tend to be young uh, they're scientifically minded which is the reason that they would be willing to partake in in such a a trial which means that they probably are healthier and more attuned with what to do. So they are probably wearing masks. They probably are, are physical distancing. So it's not exactly 
a random selection of the of the population. So that's one issue with this study. The other, of course, is is that it was over a relatively short time, and we don't know how many uh, people would be getting the uh, you know symptoms if we let this go a bit uh, further. Well, we will know that because they are, in fact, uh, letting this study uh, go on. So that's the the uh, the first issue. The other the other one is that. Uh, we don't know whether or not the symptoms that were uh, prevented were serious symptoms or not. Uh, that is, were the, the, the people who um, did come down with uh, COVID-19, in spite of having been vaccinated, uh, what kind of symptoms did they have compared to the people who were not vaccinated? So these are things that have to be uh, worked out. Where do we get the 90% statistic? Well, it comes from an analysis of the 94 people in this study who tested positive, and 90% of those people were in the placebo group. So that is uh, certainly uh, noteworthy because one would you know, uh, not, prior to the study, have expected that degree of, uh, of efficacy. Another sort of little but in this study this is the first time that a vaccine of this genre, a messenger RNA vaccine, has ever been tested. This is novel technology. There, of course, have been many different kinds of vaccines that have been introduced over the years, many of them with uh, live virus, uh, many with attenuated viruses, all kinds of different technologies. But this particular technology has never been tried before. Uh, it is intriguing. It is a novel idea. It's a very, very clever idea that, that uh, the researchers have been playing around now with a, uh, for a couple of decades. RNA essentially is a template for proteins. And uh, in January of, uh, of this year, uh, Chinese researchers released the total genomic information about the uh, coronavirus, about the, COVID the virus that causes COVID-19. As soon as that genetic information was released, uh, researchers all over the world went to work on it and discovered uh, which part of, uh, of the genes of, the, of that virus code for the protein that is located on the surface of the virus. And that's the protein that you've seen in so many pictures, the so-called spike protein. The virus looks like a ball with these little spikes on it. Those spikes are the way that the virus attaches to cells and um, it needs that attachment before it can invade the cell. The idea behind vaccines is to trick the body into manufacturing antibodies towards a virus without the virus being present in, in the body. And one way to do that is to introduce the spike protein, because that is what the body will then pick up as a foreign intruder, develop antibodies to it, and then whenever it has to confront the real virus, the antibodies will be there to engage in battle against that, that virus. Some vaccines are based on actually injecting uh, fragments of that spike protein, and those may have some uh, results in, in the near future. <clears throat> but this messenger RNA vaccine is different. This introduces the template itself for making that protein. So the RNA is injected, it gets into cells, 
And in the cells, uh, the protein, the spike protein is synthesized based upon this template. So essentially the body is actually making the protein to which the antibodies will develop. It's a very clever idea and it seems to be working. Long-term consequences, negative consequences are, are not likely because uh, of course we are all loaded with uh, RNA in our body naturally and uh, it's unlikely that any breakdown fragment of the RNA is going to cause any harm. But nevertheless, this is totally novel technology, which means that uh, we can't predict everything about it. And therefore, it requires more scrutiny than other tested technologies. We have to be patient here and uh, resist jumping on the bandwagon too quickly. Let's see what happens, first of all, in the next two months, because side effects are much more likely to show up in, in, the, short, in the short term. So a couple of more months would reveal whether or not we have to worry about uh, side effects. And then, of course, we'll have to find out whether this is applicable for children too. Will the virus work in children? Are there possible side effects there? Then there's uh, the challenge of uh, producing the vaccine and the large volumes needed and transporting it at minus 70 degrees, which is what, what is needed to preserve the, the, the active ingredient. So it is a positive step forward. Uh, it is a small step for man, but at this point, I would not yet say that it is a giant leap for mankind. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check uh, traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. <clears throat> Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, quiz time. How did a surgeon operating on a single patient kill three people in the same operation. Surgeon operating on a single patient killed three people during the same operation. How did that happen? You know, the answer, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also, of course, call to ask any other question, or you can Text your questions, comments, whatever, to 514-800. Most of us, when we're confronted by uh, smelly socks, say, phew, phew, I don't want this. However, some researchers, and in this particular case, entomologists, those are scientists who deal with insects, were very keen to sniff out some sweaty socks. Well, these were not ordinary sweaty socks. These were socks that had been given to a large group of school children in Kenya to be worn overnight. And then the researchers collected these for analysis. What were they interested in? Malaria is a terrible disease and it is endemic in Africa. Many people get it. Uh, it is caused by the bite of a mosquito, the female mosquito. It's only the female that bites because she needs uh, blood from people to nurture her eggs. The male does not, uh, does not bite. It has been known for a long time that the mosquito is more likely to bite someone who has been infected with the malaria parasite. In fact, this is how the disease spreads. So mosquito bites a victim who has the malaria parasite it gets into the mosquito's blood, and then it goes and bites someone else. And then the parasite is, is transferred. The question has been, 
why are mosquitoes more attracted to people who already have the disease, who already have uh, malaria? This is what the researchers were interested in finding out. Of course, the theory is that uh, malaria victims somehow release in their sweat or in their breath some chemical that alerts mosquitoes that uh, a nice, tasty blood meal is in the offing. How do you find what these chemicals are? So they uh, hatched a scheme of giving socks to children in Africa, having them wear at night, then collecting those socks and separating them based on whether or not they came from students who had tested positive or negative for malaria. And then they put these uh, socks, the ones that had come from children tested uh, positive, in one glass container, and the ones that came from kids who had tested negative in another container, and they filled these containers with uh, mosquitoes. And they studied how the mosquitoes were attracted to the socks. And uh, as you guessed, they were more attracted to the socks that had been worn by the children who had uh, been positive, positive for malaria. The next question was, what was in that uh, sweat or that smell on the socks that was attractive to mosquitoes? Now, why would that be of interest? Because if you can find out exactly what sort of chemical attracts a mosquito, you can use that in traps and uh, attract the mosquitoes to those traps so that they will leave people alone. How do you do this? Well, in order to, to uh, discover what compounds were present, uh, the researchers needed a pretty large sample. Uh, so they went back to the students and they wrapped their feet overnight in plastic bags. And then they collected the plastic bags, which then had uh, a more concentrated uh, uh, amount of sweat in them. And they analyzed that with gas chromatography, which is a standard way of, of looking for uh, compounds. And they discovered that the students who had been positively tested for malaria had higher levels of a class of compounds called aldehydes. So, of course, the next... Uh, uh, project was to take some of these aldehydes, like nonanal, that was a common one, to see whether or not it attracted mosquitoes. Well, it actually did, but not as well as the researchers had hoped. However, when they put the nonanal on the skin of people who had already been infected with malaria, then the attraction was much greater. So, there is some combination of compounds, of which nonanal is one, that is released by people who have malaria. So it's an interesting kind of study. Uh, so far, nothing really important has come out of it, but uh, it puts researchers on the track for trying to find something that is released uh, by people who have uh, malaria that is not released by people who don't have it, which is attractive to uh, mosquitoes. Uh, very interesting research uh, because malaria is a real plague. Uh, there are uh, drugs that treat it. Uh, the original one, of course, was quinine, which was extracted from the bark of a tree that grew in, in Peru. It was originally imported into Europe uh, by the Jesuits. It was sometimes called Jesuit bark. Uh, 
uh, sometimes called Pope's powder, uh, because the Jesuits, of course, were, were Catholic. And when it was first imported into Europe, uh, not everyone was enamored uh, of this. And in, um, in England, the Protestants thought that this was uh, some sort of uh, Catholic attempt to reconvert them into to Catholicism, and they refused to use it. Uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, said he would rather uh, suffer from malaria, which he did, uh, than take this uh, uh, Catholic powder, as he, he called it. But of course, once the powder had proved its metal, it became pretty well accepted across Europe. The only problem was that there wasn't enough of it. And uh, there was a search on to find uh, synthetic methods to, to produce it. And, um, you know, as I told you that story many times, uh, one of the uh, failed synthetic attempts by a young British uh, uh, schoolboy, he was only 18 years at the time, a failed attempt to produce quinine resulted in the first synthetic dye ever produced, uh, which was uh, mauve. Uh, today, quinine is, is not much used in the treatment of malaria. There are better drugs. Uh, there's a drug called Art artaminicin, which is, a uh, which is extracted from a uh, herb, and uh, that was developed based on traditional Chinese uh, medicine. And of course, uh, still the best way to fight malaria is to make sure that uh, the mosquitoes don't bite in the first place. So mosquito nets, for example, are, are very important. And uh, insecticides uh, have to be used in some areas where there's an over-infestation uh, uh, over with mosquitoes. And uh, DDT is, still, is now used in some areas of Africa, and it can be safely used when it is just uh, sprayed on the walls of, of buildings, You're not randomly sprayed all over the place, but sprayed on the walls of buildings, so when mosquitoes land there, they, um, they die. So now you see why researchers are interested in looking uh, or sniffing, at least with chemical equipment, uh, sweaty socks of uh, African schoolboys, hoping to find some solution to the problem of malaria. Okay, we're going to take a break. Let me remind you of the question. How was it that one surgeon operating on one male patient during the same operation killed three people? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check news, weather, and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let me hit the lines and go to Michael. Michael. Yeah, Michael. Yes, sir. Um, the patient? Yeah. It was the female? And she was pregnant. No, I said the patient was male. Oh, flip. It's a male patient. Okay. <laughs> so my answer would make sense. Nope, but no. No, okay, there, there there, are no recorded male pregnancies. <laughs> okay, thank okay, you. Okay, thanks. All right, let's try Sean. Sean? Sean? I think Sean probably had the same answer. No, the, the patient was male. And this is a real... Uh, I'll give you a clue. It happened for the days of anesthesia before the days of anesthesia. So it was in the early 1800s when this happened, and it's a real occurrence, and it was not really such an unusual occurrence. Okay, so if you think you know the answer, a surgeon operating on a single male patient in that operation actually killed three people. How did that, uh, that happen? Uh, let me also give you another uh 
little quiz item to chew on. And um, the name of this pigment derives from the Latin for beyond the sea. What is that pigment? Derives from the Latin for beyond the sea. Yeah, I'm kind of into the quiz modality these days uh, because of uh, the very sad loss of uh, Alex Trebek. <clears throat> I've always liked Jeopardy. Watch it regularly. I think it's a great show. You learn a lot from it. And uh, uh, Alex was there, I think, for 37 years or 34 years, something like that. Uh, he was Canadian. So he was a Canadian icon, and he was such a, such an excellent uh, host. He always wanted to be called host. He never wanted to be called the stars of the, the star of the show because he said the star of the show is the game itself, which is is true. Uh, I think Jeopardy is a really a very instructive game. You learn something. Uh, it's it's not an easy game. It's not an easy game because first of all you have to. Uh, kind of change the way that you think because, of course, the answer has to be formulated in in, in a question. And uh, sometimes it's hard to understand the clue. You really have to concentrate on it to see what, what it, uh, it really means. Anyway, in order to pay homage to Alex Trebek, uh, I put together a little chemistry Jeopardy quiz that you can all access on our website, which is www dot ca slash oss you go there you'll find the uh, the quiz i think i i think i asked uh, 25 questions and obviously the category is chemistry so it'd be interesting to see how you do so if some of you want to give that a try right now you go to the website mcgill.ca slash oss do the little quiz give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text me at 514-800, tell me exactly how you did. I'd be interested to know uh, how people do on this little um, uh, chemistry uh, quiz. All right, we have some others who I think want to give it a try. Uh, and this is Laureen. Uh, yes, hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Um, could it possibly be the surgeon, Dr. Robert Liston? Yes, it was. And... Um, he was known for very quick amputations, mm -hmm. and he was trying to go so quickly that as he sliced down, he cut the fingers off his assistant, and as the knife came back up again, he cut a spectator's coattails. That person died of fright. The assistant later died of uh, infection from the fingers being cut off. That's exactly right. Although the story that the way that I know it is that both of them died from infection from the gangrene. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so yes, indeed, he he cut into the finger of the uh, of the man who was holding the patient down, and of course, in those days, they had to hold the patient down because this was prior to anesthesia. And uh, uh, and uh, the patient died as well. Of yes, the patient died as well. And uh, on the, as you said, on the backswing, he cut into one of the spectators because operations there, of course, were um, sort of uh, events where everyone in the hospital would gather to, to watch and be instructed by Liston, who was you know, a famed surgeon at the time. And I have a little passage here uh, about uh, how Liston operated. He was six foot two, operated in a bottle green coat with Wellington boots, he sprung across the blood-stained boards upon his swooning, sweating, strapped-down patient like a duelist, calling, Time me, gentlemen, time me, to students 
craning with pocket watches from the iron uh, rail galleries. Everyone swore that the first flash of his knife was followed so swiftly by the rasp of saw on bone that sight and sound seemed simultaneous. To free both hands, he would clasp the bloody knife between his teeth. These, these were interesting times. We have come a long way since then. Imagine I'm a, glad I didn't live then. <laughs> imagine a surgeon grasping the bloody scalpel in his, uh, in his teeth and getting dressed up in, a, in his finery to do uh, operations. This, of course, was before they knew anything about antisepsis and certainly before they knew about uh, anesthesia. Uh, anesthesia was uh, introduced in the middle 1800s uh, only, and of course the uh, story often told about nitrous oxide and ether being the first anesthetics. Ether was the, the one that really worked, uh, worked well and uh, was in fact the, the prime anesthetic that was used for, for about 40 years. And uh, things were obviously very different in, in those days. So you're, you're quite right. Uh, let me give you another question since you got this one right. Uh, what animal's saliva, uh, what animal's saliva contains a protein known as draculin? Draculin. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Possibly, but, yeah, go ahead. Possibly a, possibly a bat? Yes, it is. Oh. It's the vampire bat. Exactly. The vampire bat's uh, saliva contains draculin, which is an anticoagulant. So when it bites into someone, animal, it usually bites into animals. It's a, uh, it's a myth that they attack humans. They don't. They attack animals, but they bite into the animal. And in order to get a good sip of the blood, they inject this draculin, which is the anticoagulant that makes the, uh, the blood flow more easily. Oh, you're very good. All right. You want to take a well, shot? Well, thanks, Dr. Joe. You want to take a shot at the other question that I asked for the, the pigment? That... I, I, I just started listening, so I didn't hear. Okay. The pigment that derives its name from the Latin for beyond the sea. Ah. Do you ever take any Latin? Uh, no. <laughs> that makes it more difficult. The only thing I can think of is melanin, but... No, no, it's no, not mine. No. Okay. All right. We'll see if someone okay. else can get that. Anyway, you did a good job okay. on, on that. Okay. Thanks very much. All right. So we'll, uh, uh, we have that uh, question hanging out there. Uh, what is the pigment that derives its name from Latin beyond the sea? And I will add another question. Uh, what gas escapes when you break a tungsten light bulb? What gas escapes when you break a tungsten light bulb? We'll take our last break. We'll check traffic. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let's go to Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre. Yes, hi. Hi. Uh, the, I think the, it's mercury that's escaping, escaping from the light bulb. No, no. I, it's not mercury? No, it's not mercury. I said it, it's, no. it's a tungsten light bulb. Uh, mercury would uh, would be escaping from fluorescent light bulbs. This is a uh, tungsten light bulb. Okay. All right. Let okay, me try Terry. Terry. Hello. Hello, Terry. Yes. Yeah. Hi. I'm calling about the color uh, based on beyond yeah. the peak. Uh, would that be ultramarine? Yes, it is. Very good. Ultramarine. Ultra, of okay. course, mean beyond the marine. Yeah. And yeah. What what color is ultramarine? It's a blue. Yeah, it's a beautiful blue color. 
beautiful blue color. And and do you know what uh, uh, mineral it comes from? It, this this mineral was mined. It's still mined, and it's ground up, and that that is what gives you ultramarine. Yeah, no, not really. I'm not really yeah. a science person. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's called lapis lazuli. Ah, okay, yeah, I've which heard is, of the, yeah, the stone, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, it's a stone. Yeah, you grind it and you, you get uh, ultramarine. Beautiful yeah. blue color. Okay, very yeah. good, very good. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. bye. Uh, very interesting question that was uh, texted in uh, by Nick, who always asks good questions, and uh, about when was the first use of the surgical mask, the medical mask. And uh, it's an interesting story because it's, you know, it, it's not like a light switch was switched on and all of a sudden it, it happened. Uh, but it, it basically goes back to uh, Joseph Lister. Joseph Lister was a, a surgeon in, uh, in England, and he was really the first one to connect Pasteur's uh, theory of, uh, of bacteria to surgery that these bacteria, these infective agents, would be present in the air of the surgical theater. And he would spray carbolic acid, phenol as we know it, into the uh, operating room to kill off these microbes. And it's interesting how he got that idea, because it was long known that that uh, uh, there were all kinds of smells coming from sewage, and that when phenol was added to sewage, that suppressed the smells. And that is because it is the bacteria and sewage that are producing the, the smells. So when Joseph Lister, incidentally after whom Listerine was named, much to his annoyance, he didn't want it, uh, introduced this idea of, of disinfecting the air in the uh, surgical theater. And it was soon after that, that was 1867, I think. And very soon after that, the idea that people in the operating room would also be contributing uh, bacteria to the air and that these could get into a patient who, who was opened because of the surgery, that is, the bloodstream was exposed. So by the late 1800s, uh, there were already doctors who had fabricated masks out of uh, uh, gauze and were wearing these. But it was really the uh, so-called Spanish flu, the influenza epidemic of 1818, of, of 1918 and 1919, that brought this to the forefront. And uh, not only did uh, doctors start wearing masks for doing procedures, but the public was encouraged to wear masks. And if you look at the pictures, uh, and there are many, many, many photographs from the 1918-1919 pandemic, you'll see lots of people wearing masks. And in fact, very much like today, uh, there was legislation in some states mandating the wearing of masks. And people who did not wear masks would either be arrested or would have to pay very heavy fines. And theaters were closed down, uh, schools were closed down, very, very much like uh, we are seeing today. And um, unfortunately, the 1918-1919 pandemic resulted in some 25 million, probably more, uh, people dying. Well, today, uh, we're hopefully going to not uh, be on that route. But nevertheless, uh, you know, and we are already looking at a very large number. I mean, in, in, in the U.S. now, what is up to about 225, 230,000? And uh, 
some of the projections that that uh, are coming to light suggest that by March going to be about 400,000 people so it is really a, a catastrophic uh, situation and uh, it just seems that people are not paying enough attention uh, there's no other explanation for why uh, you know this should be happening at the speed at which is it is happening coming from people congregating indoors uh, without taking proper precautions. Maybe some of it is coming from spreading through schools. And uh, unless more strict measures are going to be taken, we're, we're going to, to uh, see a worsening of this uh, already absolutely horrific situation, a situation that you know would have been just unbelievable even a few months ago. And now we're, I guess, forced to learn to, to live with it. And uh, our, our situation here in Quebec is not much better than what we're seeing in the U.S. Uh, we're seeing about 1,300 uh, positive cases uh, every day, uh, a lot of them, unfortunately, uh, in Montreal. And at this point, uh, until we see the vaccine being introduced, the only thing we can do is, is what has been recommended by all the, the uh, public health authorities, is that uh, you wear a mask as much as possible and you stay away from any kind of uh, large gatherings as, as painful as it may be. Because if we don't do this, it's going to become more and more painful. Now, of course, there's a lot of hope on the vaccine, which we discussed. But don't get the idea that, again, this is going to be an instant solution to the problem where once the, the vaccine is, is disseminated that we don't have to pay any attention. That's not how it works. First of all, you should understand that even though we say that this vaccine is possibly 90% effective, which is unbelievable if that really happens, but let's hope that that happens, that still means that 10% of the people who will be vaccinated are still prone to getting the infection. So when we are talking about... 10% of a very large population, we still have a very large number. So that, uh, let's, let's say in, in, in Canada, if we have, what, 40 million uh, people, if we manage to, to vaccinate everyone, uh, which of course is unlikely, but in theory, let's say we manage to do that, even with a 90% success rate, that still means that there are about 4 million people who are prone to getting the infection and all of the consequences. So it still means that we will have to pay attention and still uh, have social distancing and, and you know, all the other precautions, although it is not going to be as crucial and you know, as, uh, as life-impairing as it is now. There is not going to be, it's not going to be like an on-off switch, you know, where all of a sudden when people are vaccinated, you think that you can just relax and, and that uh, this thing is beaten. This is not going to be beaten for, for quite a while until we manage to achieve some kind of herd immunity. And that will be through a combination of vaccination and through uh, just uh, the physical distancing, no matter how uncomfortable that is. Okay, we're looking forward to getting some more data on the vaccine. And Moderna, which is the uh, rival company to Pfizer, I think is set to uh, bring out its uh, its data. So we're waiting for that. 
Hopefully we'll have it by next week. In any case, that is it. We have once again run smack out of time, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Remember to check out our Jeopardy quiz on our website. That's mcgill.ca slash OSS. And until we meet again, I'm Josh Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>